Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Jeff Epstein to ETL. Jeff went to Yale before getting his MBA from Stanford here at the GSP. Um, Earlier in his career, he was an investment banker at the first Boston Corporation. He then held CFO positions at several companies, including DoubleClick and Nielsen's, and later became the executive vice president and CFO of Oracle, one of the world's largest and most profitable technology companies with a market cap of over $200 billion. Jeff is now an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, where he leads Bessemer's CFO advisory board and helps portfolio company CEOs and CFOs share best practices. He serves on a huge number of boards um, uh, and an impressive list of of board of director spots, including Couchbase, Kaiser Permanente, Okta, Tulio, Poshmark, and others. Um, And if that weren't enough, Jeff is, we're also really blessed to have Jeff as a lecturer with us in Stanford's Department of Management, Science, and Engineering, where he co-teaches the Lean Launchpad class, which is an immersive and experiential deep dive into the entrepreneurial process. Um, Today, Jeff is here to talk to us about what investors want. And I should say that, um, as all of you know in the Bay Area, we recently had a storm. And so we are having some internet connectivity issues, just FYI, but like all good entrepreneurship, we are going to be adaptive to the situation, but we ask for your patience, just FYI, in the, in the process in case there is some internet latency as we present. But with that, um, we're honored to have Jeff, and I'm going to turn the floor over to Jeff Epstein. Well, Robbie, thank you, and thanks to STVP and Basis for sponsoring this today. It's great to be here. This presentation came because many entrepreneurs come to me and say, I'd like to raise capital. Uh, and here's my pitch of why I'm so great. And my advice typically, as, as I think many of the best venture investors are, is instead of thinking about what you're doing, think about what the investor wants. And if, if you can understand what the investor wants and you can tailor your presentation to what they're looking for, you, you are now in the seat of the entrepreneur, CEO, founder. You're thinking of pitching a, a venture capitalist. And you're trying to understand what do they want. And, and this the title comes from the old Mel Gibson movie, What Women Want. Uh, if you may, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. He he wakes up one morning and he he can understand. He thinks he, he's in the advertising business and he all of a sudden thinks like a woman, and he can understand what his women uh, in of customers of the product that he's trying to selling that he's trying to sell want. So that's the the theme here. Uh, Robbie already went over some of this. Uh, my background as chief financial officer for 25 years. Stanford alumni and uh, serving on a number of boards, uh, which are, are pretty exciting. We could talk about that in the Q&A session. Uh, okay, so the first thing to understand is that venture capitalists specialize and they specialize by risk stage, meaning uh, early stage, pre-product, pre-revenue or series A and B or late stage. They specialize by market sector, healthcare, software within software, security or enterprise software, things like that. And then by geography, either the United States or even just the West Coast or uh, internet, Europe, Asia, wherever, wherever, whatever geographic region. Uh, and if you look at the investments any venture capitalist has made in the past, and they made 10 or 20 investments, and there's a theme there, if you're a part of that theme, you're highly likely to get a good audience. If, 
if you look at your company and you're nothing like all the other companies that person has ever invested in, the odds are pretty low they're going to invest in you. So you want to focus on what the venture capitalists that you're talking to have specialized in. At every funding stage, the risk goes down and the valuation goes up as you continue to improve and investors specialize this way. So some investors are willing to or e eager to take on high risk at a very low valuation and others say, no, I wanna have lower risk, but I'm willing to pay more. And it's import important to understand where the investor is in that, in, that, uh, in, in that transition. And then you wanna position yourself to what they're looking for. And you wanna think about how can I, at whatever stage I'm at, how can I reduce the risk for the investor? How can I come up with proof points that say, this actually is not very risky because I've accomplished a lot and I'll demonstrate it to you and prove it to you. Well, let's start by looking at these different stages. Uh, you can see that there's over uh, 12,000 uh, uh, venture investors a year, 100 venture investments a year, $150 billion a year, just in the United States, uh, with 5,000 of those being angel and seed rounds, several thousand being series A and B, and later stage series C. So there's a lot of deals, there's plenty of opportunity a lot of activity, and of course, this is the best of times in venture capital. Now, on the next slide, uh, what it's interesting to point out what's not venture capital, and I'll pick on this company Quibi because they were rich and famous and, uh, and pretty high profile. They raised a billion dollars in their first round in 2018 without a product. And then the, and two years later, they raised another round of 750 million still without a product, without launching. Their first revenue, they launched the product in early 2020, and within six months, they went out of business. And so they raised a billion seven fifty. They probably lost almost all of it. Uh, this is the opposite of venture capital, and it's a very high risk way to go. Now, sometimes companies like Tesla have done this and have succeeded, so it's it's not impossible to succeed this way. But this is not the venture capital way. Now, on the next slide, it shows you what a typical venture capital structure is, where you have a series of investments over time, typically a financing round every year or two. And the idea is that uh, you raise a little bit of money and you prove something with that money. So DoorDash, as an example, raised $120,000 at a 2 million pre-money valuation in 2013. They then uh, raised another uh, 2.4 million the following year. And the next year they raised 17 million at a 54 million valuation. And every year or so they raised another round. Over time, they, they've they're, they're worth, at the, as of the IPO, $64 billion. So they've done, been enormously successful, but they had over 10 financing rounds. And at each round, they had to reduce the risk and prove uh, what, what they were accomplishing in order to raise the next round. And so if we go to the next slide, the concept here of what DoorDash was demonstrating was that venture capital is gated capital, meaning there's a gate and you have to go through the gate to get to the next round. So the venture investors will give the founders one to two years worth of capital, just enough to get to the next gate. Now this footnote here says, except in 2021, what's happening right now is investors are giving venture, venture capital backed companies enormous amounts of money, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that they're not going to spend for the next year or two. And so we're in something that's very unusual. We'll have to see if uh, how the industry responds. But I would say for the last, 20 years, this idea of gated capital has been the, the, the normal paradigm where the company only has enough capital for a year or two and has to make a lot of progress during that year or two. We'll come back to this in Q&A about what the 2021 market environment is like. So 
why does this system work? Uh, well, it's, it's worked uh, in, in the natural world for a long time. This fellow Charles Darwin came up with the idea of natural selection. And fundamentally that happens with venture-backed companies. You have 12,000 venture capital companies funded every year. They're not all gonna make it. Some of them are gonna go out of business. Some will merge with others. Some will just return some amount of you know, 50 cents in the dollar or hundred cents in the dollar after only a couple of years. And so this concept of natural selection, it works very well in, uh, in, the, in the biology world of biology. It also works very well in the venture capital world. So what happens if you don't make the progress? You raise your first round of venture capital or your second round, you're not doing very well, you're not growing, you're not, you're not reducing the risk for the next round of investors. What happens? You can't raise any more money. What do you do then? Well, you're losing money. You can't raise more. And you only have one of three choices. Cut costs if you have some revenue to get to break even, sell the business for whatever you can get, or shut the business down. And this discipline of having to prove something within a year or two uh, until your cash runs out is an important reason why the venture capital process works well. So let's turn now to how do you raise money now that we've, we've laid the outline of what, how the venture capital ecosystem works. And let's start with the DoorDash example again. You have no money. You have this great idea to deliver food from, from restaurants to consumers. Well, what you do is you build a minimum viable product. Uh, what they did at DoorDash back in 2013, in the first six months of the company, you had four founders. They did some email marketing. They made flyers. They, they, they tried to get on Google organic search. They built a website with just menus. It wasn't interactive. Uh, you couldn't order on the menu. Uh, and they just was a phone number. And consumers found DoorDash somehow uh, through these flyers or marketing. They called the founders' mobile phones or they text messages to the founders and said, I'd like to order this food. The founders then went to the restaurant. The restaurants were not part of the network. The founders just went to the restaurant and ordered the food, takeout, the way they, as if they would, were eating it themselves, but then they would drive it themselves to the customers. So that's pretty basic minimum viable product. All it is is a static website, a telephone, call us up or text us, we'll order for you, we'll go to the restaurant, we'll order the food, we'll bring you the food. Uh, that was their business for six months uh, with no money. And they then raised a pre-seed round of $150,000 to hire a few people and to try to build the business out. They were already proving it was working. They already proved customers, some, a handful of customers wanted to order food this way. So they hired uh, 20 drivers as part-time drivers. They hired two employees and customer support. They expanded from Palo, from Palo Alto to Menlo Park also. And they were beginning to get a little traction. This is in the second six months of the company, months seven through 12. And the goal of this round was to make a few people happy, a few customers, a few restaurants, a few drivers, and they were very successful. Uh, the restaurants who did use them loved them and recommended them, and some users were using DoorDash several times a week. So what you're trying to do at this point is get to product market fit. There's a lot of definitions of product market fit, but one way of defining it is uh, doing a user survey, which uh, is, this is on, there's a website and a link here uh, of how to do this user survey. And the question is, how would you feel if you could no longer use DoorDash? Very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or I no longer use DoorDash. Even with a very small sample size of 100, if 40% or more people answer very disappointed, you probably have product market fit. It's a very good way of, of measuring it. So you now have reached product market fit. You've only raised a few hundred thousand dollars and now you want to expand. So now you raise your series A. And what do you do with your series A? Well, you're, you're 
expanding to your second region to San Jose, you're now up to 20 full-time employees and 300 drivers and continuing to expand. So if you remember that slide before where every year you were raising more money at higher valuations and proving more, getting more traction, uh, proving your customers love you, prove, proving you can expand from Palo Alto to Menlo Park and then from Menlo Park to San Jose and then other, other regions that you can recruit more drivers. At every level, you're reducing the risk and increasing your value. And that's what uh, investors are looking for. Now on the next slide, if you go to a large fund, uh, which has a billion dollars or more under management, they're looking for home runs. The venture capital business is in a way it's like playing baseball where instead of getting four runs for Grand Slam, you can get a hundred runs for Grand Slam or a thousand runs for Grand Slam. So people in the venture capital business on average know that many of their investments are gonna fail. Often a third of all investments in venture capital, the investors lose all their money. And a third of the time they about make their money back. And then the remaining third, the profitable third, they have to make a big return to get a good return overall on their entire portfolio. And they're looking to make a 10x return or even a hundred times return. And they're looking in many cases for a company that could be worth more than a billion dollars for a large fund. So for the company to be worth more than a billion dollars, the revenue has to be over $100 million, let's say, just order of magnitude. And to get there within a venture timeframe, meaning eight years, you have to have growth approximately triple, triple, double, double. So let's say you're a company like DoorDash and you get to 2 million of revenue by the third year. And then it were in, in not just revenue, but the profit margin on in a marketplace, you'd have to look at just not just revenue, but also what's the, what's the take of the marketplace. So, uh, that number being 2 million by the third year, then you want to triple it. You want to grow very fast You go from 2 million to 6 million, meaning that the take rate for a marketplace or the revenue for a software company, and then triple again from six to 18 and then double, double, double. And then you get to, uh, to over a hundred million dollars of revenue in the eighth year. And let's give a real example of this Shutterstock, a company where I served on the board for nine years was founded by John Oranger. This is an image of, of John with a camera there. He was the founder. Uh, he started it in 2003. It's a B2B marketplace for images. And by Shutterstock's eighth year, they had 500,000 customers. Customers were paying on average $2 an image. They were buying 100 images per year each. And if you just multiply that out, 500,000 times two times 100, that's $100 million of revenue in their eighth year. And when they started, they thought this is what we could do and they actually achieved it. So that kind of growth is something which most large venture funds will say, I don't know whether you can do it. I know some of your, your, the companies I invest in won't be able to do it, but my ambition is that every company I invest in has the potential to do that. And then in this next slide, this shows some other examples and you can see how in recent years, some companies have been growing even faster. Uh, Cornerstone, an HR software company took 12 years to get to hundred million of revenue. Coupa took eight years, Shopify six years, and Twilio, HashiCorp, Slack, and UiPath even faster. So this is possible to get to 100 million of revenue uh, within this uh, sort of two to eight year, two, two to eight year time frame for the very best companies. What are other ways of reducing risk? Well, if you're an investor, ideally you'd like to see that your, your company has a technical advantage over all the other alternatives out there. So for instance, when Google launched Google Search, there were half a dozen other search engines, but the Google PageRank algorithm was a different and superior way of doing, of getting search results. And uh, the investors initially in Google felt that this was a much better way of doing search. 
another key thing to look for is network effects. When you have a company like Uber, where if you have more drivers, you can deliver, uh, your, the car can show up faster to the consumer. If you have more consumers, you generate more rise per driver. That's a classic flywheel network effect business and investors love to see network effects. It's another way of reducing risk. So if you think about all the different things that investors would like, uh, they would like companies that can prove that they can get to product market fit, prove that they can uh, they have a potential to have a business model that can get to 100 million of revenue in some reasonable number of years, and then have these additional benefits like a technological edge and potentially network effects. Now, when you're thinking about how do you reach out to venture investors, uh, there are better ways and less good ways to do it. And the, the best way to do it is to think about Again, think what does a venture investor want? A venture investor wants their portfolio company CEOs to be happy and they trust their portfolio company CEOs. So if you can get a warm introduction to a venture capitalist from a portfolio company CEO to an investor who specializes in your stage, sector and geography, that's the best way to reach out to venture capital investors. And then let's summarize what the key metrics are that venture investors look for. We talked about uh, net promoters. We talked about uh, having product market fit. One way of measuring that is through net promoter score above 50. Uh, you'd like to have paying referenceable customers as soon as you can. For, for an early stage company, a, a sort of a rule of thumb is getting over 10 B2B, uh, 10 B2B uh, customers. For B2B, B2C, you want to have over 100 uh, paid consumers or over 100,000 monthly active users if you have a free advertising supported company. So you want to have key benchmark metrics for a number of customers. Your CAC payback, your customer acquisition cost payback under two years. If you have salespeople, you want to have your salespeople achieving quota. You want to be growing fast. You want to have a higher net renewal rate, a good gross margin. An efficiency score, which is your growth rate plus your profit margin above 50. You'd like to be capital efficient with a cash conversion score over 100 and have no customer being more than 1% of your business. So we can get into this in the Q&A, but there's a whole series of these metrics, which uh, if you have all of these, uh, you're going to be very attractive to venture investors. If you have several of them, you'll be somewhat attractive. And these are all the kinds of things that you can try to achieve as you grow. And each time you achieve one of these, you can reduce risk. Uh, let's turn now to a, a, a description of how Stanford participates in this system. And I'll, I'll talk about a number of courses that we're, we're launching. Uh, the Lean Launchpad is a course that's been around now 10 years at Stanford. We have two, uh, two different uh, uh, versions of this course. There's the winter course and the spring course. And you can learn more about it at leanlaunchpad.stanford.edu. You need to apply with a team to these courses and the timetable is coming up very quickly for the winter course. So we encourage you to apply. The winter also, there's another version of the Lean Launchpad, Hacking for Climate and Sustainability, Earth Systems 213, and the spring, there's Hacking for Defense, which is MSNE 297. So a lot of variations on the Lean Launchpad methodology that you can apply for. And then I'm teaching a new course in the business school, Chief Financial Officer Leadership in the spring. So if you're in the business school, we'd love to have you apply to that. So that summarizes the key slides that we uh, talked about today. And we're now happy to turn it over to questions and look forward to uh, talking more about any of these topics. That was such a fantastic overview, um, Jeff. Thank you, of Venture Capital. Um, Jeff, that was so fantastic. I worked in venture for five years, and it took me like three and a half years just to understand everything that Jeff just taught you guys. So um, <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is really, really tremendous. I'm going to start with the one question that I'm sure a lot of the students ask, and you addressed 
a lot of the analytics. But when you're starting a company and you're an undergrad at, stu- at Stanford or a grad student, um, when do you know it's time to approach a VC for fundraising? How do you know when you are fundable? The, the easy answer to that is if you already have traction. If you're Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard and 90% of the students at Harvard signed up for Facebook in the first two weeks, and then within a couple of months, he had most of the Ivy League signing up, it was a pretty easy decision. He knew the product was working and uh, it, there was not much risk for him. If you just have an idea and you don't know whether it's going to work or not, the question is, do you really want to drop everything you're doing and devote your whole life to it for several years? Or do you want to continue it as a side project until you have some traction and some proof that it works? And that's why courses like the Lean Launchpad are so effective, because you can do that while you're still a student. You get an intense uh, approach to, to, the, to the product and we talk to 100 customers and build minimum viable products. Uh, but you, you really get a sense of whether you have product market fit while you're still a student. I think that's, that's perhaps the optimal way to do it. Yep, yep, that's fantastic. So the first question is, when looking at a company to invest in, what is the number one factor that you take into account? Is it the founders? Is it product market fit? Is it the product service itself? Or I guess, is it the market, the market fit? Is it the product service itself or some other attribute? People have described investing in venture capital the same way as a professional gambler decides how to invest in horse racing. Uh, the gambler will say, which race should I bet on? Which horse should I bet on? Which jockey should I bet on? The venture capitalist is saying, what market do I want to invest in? What company within that market? And then what leadership team running that company? When Bessemer looks at investment, we have a theme, we have a hypothesis, we call it a roadmap. And we say, for instance, we think that the changing in cloud software will mean that it's gonna be much easier to sell software to very small businesses. Uh, And so we'll invest in a company like Shopify because Shopify sells software to very small businesses. And we invested in a dozen companies selling software to small businesses. So we start with the theme, the market that we wanna go after, we then interview all the companies in that market and we try to figure out who's going to win and we invest in a leadership team. So we're looking for all three. Now, famously, other venture firms have a different approach. Some firms say, I only care about the founders because if I have great founders and the market's not right, they'll, they'll pivot into another market. And other people say, I only care about going after big markets because if I have a big market, uh, my, my team will figure out how to take advantage of that big market. But Bessemer is, typically tries to look for all three. And so then, Jeff, isn't so? Um, and if if a founder is or a student is thinking about fundraising, um, would your guidance be just to pitch one fund? No. Uh, if you, uh, uh, any partner at a investment, a venture capital fund, probably looks at a hundred or two hundred deals a year for every one they invest in. And if you think about the venture capitalist, uh, t- the, the the classic venture capitalist will sit on the board of their portfolio companies, and you can only be on eight or ten boards. Uh, at the same time. So if on average you're involved in a company for five to 10 years and you're on eight or 10 boards, it means you're only making one or two new investments a year. And if you look at 100 or 200 deals and you only look at, you're only gonna invest in one or two, uh, it means that you only have a 1% chance of, of, of even if you have a meeting with that venture investor that they'll invest in your company. So you're really probably gonna have to talk to a number of investors before you find someone to, to bet on you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um... I found out you need almost 60 meetings if you're fundable to get um, a real um, seed check or pre-seed check um, or you need to plan for that. Um, next question is, do you think that in order to go into venture capital, it is beneficial to have experience as an entrepreneur first? 
the, if you look at the people who are most successful in venture capital, they have a wide variety of backgrounds. Some uh, were CEOs uh, of companies or entrepreneurs and founders. Some were, uh, had a financial background. Some were equity analysts. Bill Gurley was an equity analyst on Wall Street. Uh, some were heads of sales uh, or, or heads of product or engineering who then uh, became venture capitalists and, or pro product managers. So there's really no one background. There's a wide variety. I think if, if I were a young person today and I was thinking about what's the best training for venture capital other than just going into venture capital and sort of apprenticing myself, I think it would be to be a product manager because a product manager at a technology company is as close as you can come to being a founder without being a founder. And it's also as close as you can come to being an early stage venture investor because you're making the key product decisions. That's great. And there's a similar question on this thread, which I think you already addressed it, but I'll just because we're on this thread, I'm just going to reiterate it, um, which is, what is your most pertinent piece of advice for individuals interested in venture capital? So I think a lot of students actually want to be venture capitalists, not founders, and they're curious about how do, you, how do they break in? Um, what experience solidified your current future endeavors and motivated you with your financial background? Um, but yeah, Jeff, any advice well, for I, those who want to be VCs? Well, I'm an operating partner at Bessemer, so I get involved after we invest to help our companies uh, build their, their businesses. The way we think about it is the founder builds the product. And then as the company gets bitter, bigger, the, the founder's role changes and the founder now has to build the company that builds the product. Uh, and so I get involved to try to help the founder, the CEO, the CFO build the company that builds the product. Uh, so I'm not an investing partner. Uh, if you wanted to be an investing partner, the best way to do it is to start by finding investable companies. And even if you don't have much money, if you could just put a few thousand dollars in startups founded by friends of yours or people you get to know where you believe in the company and then you call up Bessemer and say hey I found this great company I put in five thousand dollars and here's why I think it's gonna be terrific and if Bessemer invests and you build a track record of three or four or five companies that you've found and invested in and some of those work you'll be very credible uh, when you go and try to get jobs at, at a venture capital firm that's what venture capitalists want to want to see they want to see people who have a hypothesis about what will work and that they've demonstrated success making those hypotheses work. That's great. Um, the next question is, how do you interact with other VC firms? Are there ever instances where you know another firm is a better fit for a certain investment? Well, the history of venture capital is that the venture capital firms had limited capital. Early companies only had five or $10 million. One firm would, would put up an investment and invite another firm in. Uh, for many years then, they had more capital, but they would invite another firm in in the next round. So we might invest in the Series A. We'll still co-invest in the Series B, but we'll want someone, another firm to lead the Series because we want an independent third party to price the round. And so uh, when I'm serving on boards, there are several venture capital partners from different firms on the same board. So there are many venture capitalists have long-term relationships, very good relationships with other partners at other firms because they've served on boards and co-invested with them. There's so much capital. I don't want someone else to lead a round. I want to lead every round. I want to put in all the money for the next five years. And it's becoming a little less cooperative. Uh, I, I think that I often have seen people refer, if, if, I, if I don't do healthcare investing, I'll often refer a healthcare to someone else. But you know, clearly if, if I think the deal is a great company and I have, if that's within my 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 category, I would, I'll, want to, I'll want to be the, uh, the lead. 
the other thing you mentioned, I think, which is worth emphasizing is there's reciprocity, which is I'll send a deal to my friend at another firm knowing that next year he might send me a deal or right. she. Yep, yep, yep. Um, terrific. Thank you, Jeff. The next question is, what has been your favorite investment so far throughout your career? And what did you learn from it? Uh, well, I have a lot of favorite investments. I've, I've been lucky enough to co-invest with Bessemer on some pretty spectacular companies. One is Twilio, which where I'm on the board and I invested very early on and it's now 60 plus billion dollars in market value. Uh, another is Toast, which just went public recently. Uh, uh, and, and another is a company where I served on the board, Booking Holdings, which used to be Priceline, where I joined when the market value was $1 billion. And after 16 years, I retired and it was $80 billion. And it became the, the, one of the largest travel companies in the world. So it's back to this concept that in baseball, you can only get four runs if you hit a grand slam. But in, in venture investing, if you have the right kind of company, uh, the returns are extraordinary uh, when you can create such enormous value. In, 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 the, in the internet world, in the software world, where once you create a product, if you have a thousand customers or a 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million customers, you have much higher revenue with the same, essentially the same cost base. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, next question. How has VC changed through the pandemic and what do you expect in the future? Well, when the pandemic first hit, we didn't know what was going to happen and everyone was very scared. Uh, the advice we gave was people should expect the problem to last for two years, which it looks like it has, and therefore they should have enough cash to last for two years. And if, if you were losing money and didn't have enough cash to last for two years, you should immediately try to raise more money if you can or cut your cost in order to extend your runway for two years. And what we found within two or three months was companies ended up in one of three categories. Either uh, COVID was actually, uh, a tailwind for them because people were working remotely and for companies like Twilio and many software companies or Zoom is a, is a great example where Zoom revenue and usage dramatically increased because of people working from home, uh, you had enormous growth. You then had companies, if you were, if you were booking for instance, booking was, was running at $10 billion of hotel reservations a month. And in March of 2000, they had negative hotel reservations because they had, their cancellations were greater than their new bookings globally. So they went from 10 billion to minus, to below zero. They laid off 25% of their employees. That, that's pretty rough. And then you had companies that were more neutral where after with a couple of months, COVID didn't affect them at all. And so what we did is we went company by company with each of our companies and we tried to figure out which category they were in. And if they were growing, we helped them grow faster and higher and, and help them with all the challenges that that fast growth uh, is involved. And if they were, if they had to cut back, uh, which for technology companies usually just means laying off people or reducing compensation in one company, the, they, they asked their employees to take a 20% pay cut and their senior people took a 35% pay cut for a few months just to get them a little more cash. And then they were luckily one of the companies that, that pulled through it within, within a few months. But it was a very tough time back, I'd say, in the March through June timeframe for many companies in 2020. And Jeff, how has COVID affected fundraising? Does Bessemer still do in-person meetings or do people pitch purely over Zoom? And do you think that's here to stay? I'd say for a year, it was purely over Zoom. Uh, now we're back to in-person uh, in, in, 
internal meetings, we're back to internal meetings with uh, portfolio companies, board meetings, and internal pitch meetings as well. So you and so founders, if they want to get money from Bessemer, they have to physically go in and and present. Uh, I don't think it's have to. Uh, we okay. invest all over the world, and we have offices all over the world. So often our portfolio companies, uh, if for whatever reason, if they're outside the United States and they can't come to one of our offices, we're happy to take the pitch by Zoom. But if they if they're able to to meet in person, we 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 think that's a better experience to because we want to go out to to dinner with them and get to know them better and spend more time with them. Uh, the interesting thing about a venture investor is if you if you make an investment, you join a board, you're probably going to be on the board for five or seven or 10 years. It's like, it's like getting married. And so you you really don't want to meet, the, the, the founder does not want to meet a venture investor for an hour at a pitch meeting and then get a term sheet and then take their money and then be stuck with them for five or 10 years on the basis of two hour is worth beginning to know them. It's really to everyone's best interest to spend many hours over many weeks or even months uh, building a relationship, getting a chance to, to see if you get along with each other. And has COVID affected um, the locus of where you are investing? Is there more of a, um, are, are, are the investors more amenable to investing outside of Silicon Valley or globally because everything is now being done more virtually? There's been a trend. There, there was a time when some venture investors famously said, I'm not going to invest in any company I can't drive to within 30 minutes, uh, which is taking a pretty extreme case. And the idea was if, if they're on boards of directors in other cities and they have to fly to the board meetings, it's just less time efficient for them. And if they can only be on 10 boards, why not be on 10 local boards rather than on 10 distant boards? Uh, the, the counter example of that is firms like Bessemer now have offices in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Menlo Park, uh, London, uh, India, Israel, and China. So uh, we can have local people you know, attend the board meetings. Uh, we have a global firm and we're interested in investing in, in companies everywhere around the world and you know, we're willing to travel. So uh, we do think it's important to have these personal in-person relationships, uh, but our, our view is uh, you can be anywhere and we'll travel to you. Okay, terrific. Next question is, do you allow undergrads in your business school class? Do you have fans? Um, if, if so, this undergrad would love to take your class. Uh, I'd encourage you to apply for it. Uh, we don't know how many business students will apply, so we'll give preference to business students. Okay. And, and we'll see. This is our first time teaching it. You know, I, I graduated the business school 40 years ago, and I became a chief financial officer, and I never took a class on how to be a chief financial officer. So... My friends and I, who include Robin Washington, who was the CFO of Gilead, she's on the board of Alphabet, Google, Mark Hawkins, the former CFO of Salesforce, and Mitesh Drew, the CFO of Ring Central. The four of us have, are co-creating and co-teaching this course, and, and it's the first time we're, we're creating it this spring. So we're using the Lean Launchpad methodology on a course, trying to create the, 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 the I hope it's going to be not a minimum viable product. I hope it's going to, it's going to be a very, very viable product for the first, the first year. Awesome. Um, next question is, how often do VCs take equity in a deal? How long does the VC startup relationship last, i.e., is it from seed until IPO? Well, if, if you invest in the seed round uh, in the past, meaning 20 years ago, often you stayed through liquidity, meaning until the company was sold or until the company went public. 
And maybe 70% of the companies were, were sold and a minority went public. Uh, in the last year, of course, many more companies are going public, so that ratio might be a little different. And now there's a lot of liquidity where many investors are willing to buy secondary stock. So meaning buy stock from either early employees or early investors, not just from the company. And so in the last few years, there's now a very active market for an early investor to sell out to a later stage investor after, let's say, five years. It's pretty rare for an early stage investor to sell out within two or three years, because usually they think the company's got a great future. Uh, but I would say after five years or so, sometimes an early investor just wants liquidity because they need the money if they're an individual investor or because they, if they're an early stage fund, they want to show they've gotten a good return because they want to raise another fund. And I think it's, uh, it's becoming increasingly common for some seed stage investors to, to sell while the company has not been sold and the company has not gone public and you're just selling to another later investor. And Jeff, there, the first part of the question was how often do VCs take equity? They always, they always uh, take well, equity, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what they do. That's what VCs do. We buy equity in, in, a, in a company where part owners of the company. So yeah, so just to, in case that's not clear, students, every the business model is it's an exchange of cash for equity and the VCs are taking equity um, uh, in exchange for the cash. So they always do. Um, they're, uh, Jeff, are there any funds that don't take equity as social impact driven funds or? I'm not too familiar else? with that. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure there are some people who, who support nonprofit kind of venture types of things. Uh, but if it's a for-profit company, uh, the venture investor is going to want, they want to own a piece of it. Uh, there's a difference between private equity and venture capital, which is worth mentioning, which is Historically, private equity firms typically buy 51% or 100% or some number in between. They buy control of a company and they run the company. They hire and fire the CEO. Venture investors historically have bought 20% of a company. And typically, the founders can still control the company after even one or two rounds of venture capital. Maybe after five rounds of venture capital, they're below 50%. But it's very different being a minority owner than being the controlling owner. And so the whole culture of venture capital is being cooperative, being helpful, whereas the whole culture of private equity is, no, you know, this is our company, we're, we're running it, we're going to call the shots. So there's a, quite a difference between venture capital and private equity culturally. And then there's growth equity, which is in between, which is a late stage investor who might make a minority investment in a later stage company, but not necessarily control it. Um, next question is also on the pandemic. You mentioned that there's been a significant change in the approach to venture capital during the pandemic and 2021. Why do you believe this change has occurred? And do you think that it will persist beyond the end of the pandemic? I think the change has occurred for two reasons. One is interest rates have now been very low for a very long time. And no, no bonds, because they're not getting any money and they don't want to have cash, they're not getting it, has appreciation potential, which is basically public stocks, private investments, real estate, things like that, Bitcoin, <laughs> NFTs, all sorts of other things. Uh, so because interest rates are so low and a company that won't make money for 20 years, if, if interest rates are high, the future value of that 20 years is not very great because uh, it's, it's a long time in the future. But if interest rates are zero, you discount that 20 year future back to today, it's, it's very high. So there are a number of reasons why low interest rates mean uh, high growth investments are worth more now. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is people have made a lot of money in venture capital in the last five years. The, investor, the GPs, the LPs have all done very well. And so the people who control 
wealth in this country are saying, I want to put more and more money into venture capital in bigger and bigger funds. And so the amount of capital in venture capital is at record levels now. And so what a number of funds are doing is they're bidding against each other to at higher valuations at earlier stages. And give, they're trying to persuade founders to say, look, you, you, you asked for 20 million, we'll give you 50 million, we'll give you 100 million at a higher valuation than you thought you were going to get. Take the money, even if you're not going to spend it in the next year or two. And so you're going to end up with hundreds, literally hundreds of companies who have so much cash that they cannot spend in the next couple of years. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it, whether they just hold it or whether they make acquisitions with it or whether they dramatically ramp up spending or maybe they'll spend it on marketing. It's, it, 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 it's, it's, a new, it's a new phase, which is somewhat reminiscent to what happened in 1998 to 2000 when these companies had enormous amounts of capital back then as well. And Jeff, if you have to look into your crystal ball 18 months from now, or when assuming the pandemic is over by then, um, what do you think the ecosystem is going to look like in terms of venture capital? Do you think interest rates will well, still be low? Do you think that there'll be a contraction? Uh, well, my favorite quote about interest rates is uh, Warren Buffett was asked uh, what he when he thought interest rates would go back up. And he said, well, I didn't predict interest rates would stay so low for so long. So why do you think I can predict when they're going to go back up? It's, I can't predict that either. So if Warren Buffett can't predict interest rates, I don't think I can either. Uh, but we have to be prepared for the possibility that interest rates will go back to sort of 5% long-term bond rates, which is where they were for many decades. If they do, then the price of everything, the of the value of all investments will come down. The value of real estate will come down. The value of technology investments will come down. The stock market will come down. That's just the, it's just a, a law of finance because bonds will become more attractive and debt will become more attractive. Uh, in terms of the venture world, uh, the question is, will there be more high quality technology and healthcare related businesses which use technology to solve problems? And the answer is absolutely there will be. My answer to that is, does the world have problems? And the answer is their world is full of problems. And so anyone who can solve those problems will be able to build a business which will succeed. And there's an unending supply of problems. There's an unending supply of innovative people who will try to solve those problems. And therefore, over time, venture investors will find those founders and, and give them capital. Now, there'll be cycles. There may be a cycle where for some period of time, anybody who invested in late 2021 at 50 times revenue uh, if the companies are only valued at 15 times revenue a few years from now, instead of 50 times revenue, they might lose money. Uh, but the companies will still do fine. Uh, the investors might not do fine because the, the value per share might go down. Uh, and and the, the amount of capital might, uh, might, might be reduced in venture capital. But uh, I think it's an important part of the economy. I think it's, it's been around for 50 years. It's, uh, it's not going away. Okay. Um, thank you, Jeff. Um, the next question is, if you pursue venture capital as an undergraduate, is the expectation that you will drop out and pursue your startup full time? Um, what are the best sources for pre-seed capital while still in school? My, most investors will not give, they will not invest in a company run by a part-time person, whether they're a part-time student or whether they're a part-time actor or part-time anything else, because they're saying, look, I'm, I'm putting my money in. So what, what people often do is they raise friends and know them and trust them and are giving them money, not really because it's an investment, they're giving them because it's a vote of confidence in someone they like and, and, and admire. And they, and they hope uh, that it works, but they're saying, look, it's, if it doesn't work, it's, it's sort of like a, it, it's, 
it's as if I'm sponsoring somebody, if I was sponsoring a, 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 an amateur athlete to turn pro, to try to help them turn pro, that type of thing. Thank you. And, and you broke out, Jeff. I think people heard it, but just let me um, mirror what Jeff was saying, was um, that as an undergraduate, if you're part-time anything, part-time undergrad, part-time actor, part-time anything, a VC is not likely to invest. So you have to be full-time. Um, but while you're a student, it's best to get money from friends and family who will support you um, no matter what. And it's effectively more like sponsoring you. So look for friends and family as sources of pre-seed capital. Um, we'll end with this one question, which is on um, what is Lean Launchpad? So I'll just exercise my prerogative and ask this question. What is Lean Launchpad? How far along do I need to be with an idea or a team to join? What are some outcomes of the course? And have students been successful? The Lean Launchpad is a, a course that's been around for 10 years at Stanford and many other uh, universities and, and government agencies to try to teach this process of building minimum viable products, interviewing potential customers, and iterating quickly, uh, as opposed to the, op it's the opposite of what Quibi did, which is raise a lot of money, build a product, and hope people will use it, which in, in that case failed. Uh, the idea is, uh, while you're doing product development and you're building the product, you're also doing customer development. You're developing your customers simultaneously while you're developing the product. And we teach this process in a hands-on way. Uh, it's like if you're, if you're learning how to play basketball, you don't just read a book about basketball. You go on the basketball court and you shoot, and you shoot the ball and you pass the ball. So this is as close as you can get to being in a startup uh, without actually dropping out of school and being in a startup. You, you have a team of four or five students. You apply with an idea and a team. You don't have to have done much work before the class. You, you do all the work during the class. Uh, and if you go to the, the, the Lean Launchpad website, you'll see all the requirements for how to, how to uh, form a team and how to, uh, how to apply. We'd love to have you apply. It's, we, it's, we, it's, it's designed for graduate students. So uh, occasionally we accept undergraduates, but it's mostly gonna be graduate students. And we like to have mixed teams of people who are both technical and business oriented. So if you have four or five people on a team to have some uh, people who can build the product and some people who can design and sell the product. Uh, and we'd love to have you apply. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.